Thank you everyone who came back in the town we matter. We do have a lot to cover. Um, I just wanted to point out really quickly that I, I wanted to highlight something really quick. Um, we're talking about a lot of different things that I think some of you are for the first time ever hearing this. And I just want to be trauma-informed and I want to be sensitive to your all's experiences as well. Because there's people in this room who may share some things that you may hear today on this, on this stage. And I don't want you to think we're being, uh, we're trying to force anybody to forgive the trafficker or force anyone to forgive anybody. It's just exploring our thoughts and exploring why we think the way we do. Where do we learn, where do we learn our perspectives and can we begin to relearn them to create better solutions? And so I just want to set that playing field that we're not saying that people shouldn't be held accountable, but once you're held accountable, then what? Um, and, and I think that's what the bigger question is here today. And then how are people treated when they are being held accountable? And what are we doing about it to really get to the deep-rooted issue? And that's really what this is all about. So I just wanted to say, um, if we did offend anybody, the apology is there. We, we are, we're not trying to offend anyone. We're not trying to get anyone into a bra or anything like that. Um, one of our last workshops, a woman had shared that she had experienced some um, sexual abuse. And so in talking to her, she was like, wow, like I pretty much was a small pivot from pretty much being in the same predicament that you all all have fell into. Um, and so that's just the perspective that I wanted to give and I wanted to be sensitive to those in the room that may be hearing this for the first time. Thank you, Ebony. So I mentioned earlier on that this day would unfold and that there's a lot of surprises along the way. So this is a moment where there's another um, another layer that we're gonna peel back to this and to, to the perspectives that are offered in the room. And what I'm gonna share is that this is a panel of lived experience experts. Every person on this panel has lived experience in some way with the issue of human trafficking and really has then taken that experience to help inform others and are courageous enough to speak with all of you today. So I ask you to open your hearts and your minds as you listen to them and listen to their stories and then be compassionate. Um, know that it takes a lot to sit up here and tell you what they're about to tell you. Oh, am I not talking? Enough? Sorry. Um, it takes a lot for them to get up here and share their personal life stories with you. And so please just um, come with an open mind and compassion and empathy to this next section of our program. So with that, um, I would like everybody, if they could, to just um, in a sentence or less, let everybody know kind of what, what your lived experience is with this issue, uh, where you fit into. We, we gave a lot of different perspectives during the HT 101, so where do you fit in? <clears throat> so my lived experience okay. is, my lived experience is as a person that uh, was exploited. Oh. My lived experience is someone who was exploited, exploited others, and that falls on the both uh, buyer side and trafficking side. Um, hello, at um, <clears throat> approximately 16 going on 17 years old, myself along with a majority of my peer group merged into the subculture of pimping and prostitution. I was the exploiter, I was the, the pimp. The word commonly used now is trafficker, which I don't really identify with, but for the sake of common terms, I was the trafficker. My lived experience is that of a buyer. My lived experience is... Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. All right. My lived experience is labor trafficking, but it's not started as in India. And 
came to America when I was seven. Actually, Ruduka, since you have the microphone, I'll start with you. A little <laughs> bit more of, can you tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like in India and how you came to America? I'm going to start crying. That's not because I'm emotionally, <laughs> because good things and bad things happen. And I don't want you to feel sorry for me or any of that. Um, I was in India, and I think India is common to have labor trafficking because we have a lot of servants in India. If The more wealthy you are, the more servants you have. And I think in my guessing, in my situation, my parents couldn't afford to keep me. When I was a kid, they sold, I think, I'm guessing this, but it's never happened, so in a piece of paper, um, sold me to a very wealthy family in India. And the wealthy family decided that her daughter is married in America, and she needed a servant. And she had two daughters, and she's a lawyer. Now she's a judge in Houston, Texas. And she bought me to take care of her two little girls. But God had a different plan for me. Um, they, he did, they decided to keep me in the house, but I'm very smart. I never went to school in India. I never went to school in America, but I figured out how to educate myself when they're not home. And I memorized all the locks, all the gates, because very wealthy in Houston, Texas, and decided to run away when no one's home. And I told myself, I'm going to do everything to get out of this situation and make myself who I am. And that's number one is education, I want it. I ran away, and I, when I ran away, and I didn't have a clue. I memorized where the passport was. I searched for my passport. It took me months and years. Months seemed like years. Um, but finally found the passport, ran out of the gate, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to stay at the gate because they're going to show up any minute. Um, but some, some angel showed up. And she was Caucasian, and she said, do you speak English? I said, no, I, I, I couldn't. I spoke six dialects from India, and I didn't speak English. And she's like, she was touching me and uh, holding me because I was crying, I was sweating. And that was the first time I ever felt like mother touching, you know. And then uh, she opened gates for me, the doors for me, and she said, I have to take you to the police station. In, in English. She took me to the police station. I ended up in the police station. And the woman who had kept me, as our servant, she showed up at the police station. And she said, I was her sister. I need to go back with her. I didn't get my way. And I have to go back. But one person, one person in the old police department stood up and said, no, she cannot go with you. We need translator. And that's where my whole story started. Mm. Thank you so much. I'd like each of our panelists um, to just give a little bit of background of what their childhood was like, what the environment was like, where they grew up, where, where you grew up, where you're from. You could interest a piece of Okay. Um, so I am from Oceanside, grew up in North County. Um, 
I, well, I moved there when I was five. I'm originally from Los Angeles, but that's where I consider myself from. Um, originally, I was a teen mom, so I had my first daughter at 16, so that was a vulnerability of mine. I come from a um, separated household. My parents were separated at a very young age. I normally stayed with my mom, who was in a very abusive domestic violence relationship, as well as a lot of alcohol alcoholism. So that was my family dynamic, an older sister, a younger brother, um, and going into te uh, my, before my pregnancy as a teen, I was um, a CSEC, which is commercial sexual exploitation of children for a couple of months with an older boyfriend. And then my exploitation that I knew of started from 20 and ended at 27. Um, <clears throat> so my, Exploitation started in the womb. Uh, my mother was pregnant with me and was addicted to heroin at the time that she um, conceived me. She was in prostitution as well. Um, and then I was born in, inside um, the facility. They were able to let me let her out. And that's when my mother moved to San Diego uh, to an independent living home. I was raised in that. Um, and my exploitation pretty much started, or my sexual abuse started at a very young age, at the age of four. Um, by family members, women, men, different people, um, and I didn't start to get, I wasn't in exploitation until the age of 18, um, and that's where my exploitation started, but I grew up in an alcoholic, very domestic, violent household in auto foster care. <clears throat> um, childhood, um, just grew up in a, a very toxic household, uh, father and mother, a father very mentally abusive, not physically abusive, but he attacks on my mom and myself. Um, were re uh, regular as a kid. Um, by 10 years old, my family had, my parents had divorced. By 12 years old, we were, I was a homeless kid. Um, junior high school, homeless between the ages of 12, right before 15 years old, uh, going to Bell Middle School, and um, just bit, pretty much acting out my home life at school. That was my wannabe gang member stages, and also began selling um, marijuana at the time, 12 years old. I, I used that money that I would make off of marijuana to give to my mom for gas money. I was purchasing food for my, my, my family that we was also homeless. I have a sister who is handicapped, mentally handicapped, and two cousins that my mom took care of because their mother was on crack cocaine. So the four of us were all homeless. At the time, didn't realize my mom was actually also addicted to drugs and she was out of the house most of the time. And I was forced to become a man by 15 years old. We had got into a house, but I was already on my manhood. I haven't been back to my house since I was 15 years old. Went through high school by 17, had my own apartment, 18. Rewind back, 16 years old in my community where I'm from, the subculture of pimping and prostitution became the cool thing. We had merged out of the gang era, and most of my peer group, male and female, we went at this together. My friends who had girlfriends became their prostitutes. They became the first-time pimps. First time I ever even had an introduction to that culture was HBO special, Pimps Up, Hose Down, that they played at 4 o'clock in the afternoon for my young 16-year-old mind and my friends. We seen that, first time seeing what it looked like, a prosperous uh, black male it, at the time looked like a positive, good thing we could get into. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, that's my uh, upbringing, you know, and many years of just being trapped chasing a, in, uh, a mythical, mythical carrot that we never really fully got. My upbringing is very different. I grew up in the church. 
I was a straight-A student. I went to a really good college. I was very active in the youth group. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I took a purity pledge. I did all the things on the outside that make you the good kid. But I had a double life. Behind the scenes, my parents got divorced when I was, I think, five years old. Uh, I lived with my mom at first, and my stepdad started sexually abusing me. I didn't tell anyone, and the few people I did, I told a couple of my teachers at school, and the response from them was, that's too bad, we'll pray for you. So I had this hurt inside me, and I kept it uh, going with me. I eventually at least was able to get out of living here in San Diego in that house, moved up with my dad in Tacoma, but he was a single dad just trying to make a living, so he wasn't around a lot. So I was very active in the church and, and put on a, a really good face and a really good show, but um, on the inside there was a lot of hurt and a lot of problems and a lot of uh, lack of structure going on inside. My upbringing, you already heard a um, little bit about it, but my upbringing in the beginning to baby to almost 13 was like nightmare. But after that, I met a, she's just wonderful. She's a military wife and she was craving to have babies and she could have. And then one day social worker called her. She's a foster mom for Catholic charity. And the social worker said, we have a kid here, she's almost 13. Would you want to keep her until we figure out what we should do? And Houston, Texas did not have any foster homes. I was in a juvenile hall waiting for someone to take me for months. And the minute she said yes, they flew me to Chula Vista. She's still here, she's my best friend. And we own business together, we own real estate together. We are, she's my best friend. Ever since 13, she bought me up to, she opened doors for me and educated me. She retired early and she's not here today. She wanted, because she said she's going to cry and she didn't want to do that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, Jamie, can you tell us a little bit about how, um, how you got into the life of the team? Sure. So originally, um, as I said, uh, at 15, I had, an, so backstory a little bit. I didn't know, I disassociated completely with my exploitation at 15 until I was almost, I think, 30. Um, so I just realized that this was an experience that I had through, um, funny enough, a song that triggered a bunch of memories that felt like a daydream, kind of those like blurry daydreams that you get throughout the day, but you know they're like deja vu. And so through that and then through working with talk therapy and things like that, I realized that I had this experience when I was 15. Um, I was dating a much older guy who was 27, which uh, when I think back to that was um, part of the huge problem was my lack of guidance and not understanding I didn't even think twice to have a 27-year-old boyfriend at 15, which we should. If my daughter had a 27-year-old boyfriend, I don't think I'd be able to sit on this panel right now because I'd probably be locked up somewhere. But um, not having that guidance and not knowing, not having anyone even paying close enough attention to me to know that I had a 27-year-old boyfriend was part of the problem in itself. And so 
Um, basically what was happening is we would go to kickbacks at his brother's house. He was date raping, or he was roofing me, um, slipping me a pill in my drink. I would either have you know one or two drinks and then completely black out and not know what was going on. Basically, he had a group of three to four friends that were coming in exchange for sexual favors or rape while I was passed out. They were getting, he was getting drugs and money for that. Um, like I said, I didn't remember that whole period of my, of my teenage years um, until about a year and a half ago. So fast forward, I was a teen mom. I had my first daughter at 17 and then I had my second daughter at 19. I married their father because that's what people told us we were supposed to do. You know, you have babies, you might as well get married. So at 19 and 21, we both probably shouldn't have been married. It wasn't the best decision. We didn't even know who we were as people yet, let alone as individuals. And so we got married, he joined the military, left a basketball scholarship. We were okay for about a year. After about a year, he realized that he wasn't solid in his sexuality so he was confused because we got married so young he didn't even know if he liked women apparently so he left me i was now t almost 20 with or i was 20 at this time with two little kids not knowing that there were many resources to help support me as a single mom not really knowing that there was support out there period i had disconnected and isolated from my family thinking that I needed to build a family of my own and so I didn't really have the family connections that I needed and so in that state of mind kind of wanting to relive my teenage years that I felt that I lost as a teen mom I went out to a club um, got drunk and met a guy who was already same age as me was already exposed to this lifestyle um, a lot of what Armand had shared um, just grew up in a culture where this was the thing to do like this is what his friends were telling him was a cool thing to do this is what you do if you have a girl that that likes you and in his state of dependency on on money and exploitation I was completely vulnerable to um, being entrapped into that with him and so I liked him he liked me and I shared with him that you know I had two little kids at home had just lost my waitressing job didn't really know how I was going to get the bills paid and after about a week it wasn't too hard for him to entice me to um, to build this legacy together and you know he told me how we could make a thousand dollars a day and to me the less food I had in the fridge the less gas that I had and the more bills that kept piling up the nicer that seemed like an option and so that's really how my exploitation uh, began um, so my exploitation began at the age of 18 where I grew up in a very domestic violent household and I ended up leaving my home. I got a job at Foot Locker. I ended up dating this guy who I found out later was a pimp and he was in his grooming phases with me. Didn't realize it. Um, and then during that time, this guy was actually after me because found out he had a girlfriend, long story in that. The guy who ended up approaching me to protect me in the beginning um, was a guy that I actually fell in the game with. And I actually approached him about the life. And I had a friend at the age of 18 when I had a job, she was called an escort. Now I knew what a prostitute was because my mother formerly was a prostitute for 15 years. But I had no idea what an escort was. And from what I had, Pretty Woman was one of my favorite movies growing up. And so that was my idea what an escort was. Um, and so when she said it to me, I was like, oh, okay, that's cool, you go on dates. Um, I didn't care until I became homeless, until this guy was looking for me and trying to hurt me. And then the guy that jumped in my MySpace inbox 
social media, was like, hey, how are you? He just really wanted to get to know me. He had grew up in the same type of lifestyle, the fatherless, father in prison. He had been hustling, selling drugs since he was 14 years old. His grandmother sold dope out the house when he was only six or seven years old. So he had a past too. Um, and when I told him, hey, I want to be an escort, he looked at me like, what? Why are you going to be an escort? And I'm like, because I have nowhere to go. I'm literally sleeping on the floor in my friend's dorm room, and I have no food. I have, I'm not going back home to a domestic violence household. My mother is being beaten and dragged down the steps. So I need a way to make some money. And he said, okay, well, come talk to me. Um, and the which in the conversation happened was basically, uh, well, you already out here having sex, right? And I'm like, well, yeah. Uh, and he's like, have you got anything for it? And I'm like, a heart, he's a heart, a heartbroken or left behind, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, shoot, people out here doing this and they get money. This is what that's this is what's happening. It's on the rise. You won't always have to have sex, but if you're already having sex, then why not make money doing it? And to an 18 year old girl, it's like, hey, I am already out here having sex. I've been raped, I've been molested, I've been through all of this stuff. And my mama used to always tell me as a little kid, you don't lay down on your back for free. You should at least be able to get up and buy a McDonald's, get a bus, get a be able to make a phone call, have enough money in your pocket to make a phone call, get a meal from McDonald's, and catch the bus home. And with that being raised and being taught that, um, growing up, it was like, okay, well, my mama told me I shouldn't be out having sex for free anyway, and she used to do it. And when I came to my mother about it, she didn't say anything. She was just like, okay, well, if that's what you're going to do, then, you know, be safe. And that was been my beginning of exploitation. Okay, um, so... I'll talk about the beginning of me exploiting, but the beginning of me being groomed to even think that exploiting was something that was okay was as early as I can remember as a little kid walking through Vaughn's grocery store line and seeing half-naked women on every single magazine. So um, you add that plus television plus music, women are sex objects and there's a, a value on them. I learned that before I knew I was learning that. Those ideas were being planted into my mind. So as you got older, and now I'm listening to rap music, which I explained earlier, and you know, women are bees and everything else under the sun, but, but, but human beings, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> so I had, my mind had already been molded and to, to think a certain way, to believe a certain way. Uh, so even before I knew what a real pimp was, I had knew the word, and actually, it was a good word. It was a cool word. If you were a pimp, it just meant girls liked you or you got more than one girl. And it didn't matter if I was in the poorest neighborhood or the suburbs. The word was used across the, across the board. So um, around 15 years old, ninth grade is really when uh, I began exploiting. At the time, we called it juicing in, in school. If a girl was around you, liked you, wanted, or even was just your friend, she had to give you money of some way, buying your lunch at school buying you jack-in-the-box, buying you clothes. We just called it juicing. And across the, uh, my, I'm from up the street. I'm from Southeast San Diego and literally Linda Vista, up the street. Majority of my family is around the corner from here. You can skip there from here. So um, this is not far from where we're at, okay? Bringing it home. Um, so that juicing was not just me and my certain peer group or my, my circle of friends. It was known. It was okay. This was the thing to do. Girls accepted it. So around 16, going on to 17, and uh, that coming home and watching that documentary of Pimps Up, Hose Down, at the time looking like I finally am seeing prosperous black men. Happy, money. Well, at the time looked like happy women, too, that were in there. At the time. I've recently revisited that documentary, and everybody looks miserable in there now. 
And now I know the truth behind those guys. We idolized those gentlemen on that on that documentary. So we watched this documentary and it wasn't just us, my peer, uh, you know, peer group and people that are growing up like me seeing this documentary. And the, the men that were in the documentary as pimps, they didn't just stop there. Now we're hearing them, the rappers that we listened to were featuring them in their music. So more confirmation that this was okay. When Snoop Dogg went from being a gangster rapper to now his nails are long and his hair is long and he brings Bishop Don Juan out, he has women on leashes. Now Snoop, somebody I've idolized since 11 years old, is now a pimp all of a sudden wondering, Snoop, when did you have time to pimp? You've been rich since 19. <laughs> but this imagery was allowed to happen. It was allowed to come to us. Major media groups promoted it. It wasn't just Snoop. They, uh, the actual whole genre of music was produced. We called it pimp rap when I was a kid because that was what we were listening to and had taken over our airwaves, planting continual messages in our head. We talk about brainwashing. It was not just the guys that were brainwashing the girls. We're being brainwashed too. The same jargon we're giving to them, we're giving to ourselves also. We didn't separate and have separate conversations when it was just the guys. We're over here telling each other the same thing we're telling those women. The same things and conditions, the same music we're listening to and dancing to, the girls next to me and grew up with me are singing and dancing to that same music. So if that's going into my head and making it okay for me, it made it okay for them too. We weren't forcing anybody. We didn't drug anybody. And I'm speaking about my specific group. Yeah, I know of it happening, but as the general consensus, that was not the case. We were a bunch of poor, impoverished, lack of opportunity, lack of resources, poor, horrible education system that thought this was a, finally an option for our lives. And we went forward with it. I have cousins that entered the game. I have play sisters that entered the game. I have friends that I've known since 13 that are in right now stuck. And not because there's a pimp involved. It's just them that this was a lifestyle that we went into after gangs, after crack, with, no, with still the same underlining problems that were never addressed in the first place. And even if we, uh, let's say, yes, we eradicated domestic human sex trafficking and still have not fixed the issues that led us into the life, there will be something else. Thank you, Armand. You're welcome. Brooke, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what infection was into pornography. So, growing up in the church, going to a church school, I was taught the purity movement. I was taught that the best way to live your life was like optimally, if you were this holy, the first time you kissed your wife would be on your wedding day. And uh, being a seventh grader and hearing that, starting to have hormones, that's a, that's a pretty tough standard to live up to. Because of course at the same time, I'm curious what girls look like so we lived in this constant state of being told that um, our sexual parts were dirty if we used them, holy if we didn't use them, and I've seen a lot, a lot of dysfunction in my group, in the people I grew up with. So we had this dichotomy of being seventh, eighth grade boys, curious, but then also feeling a lot of guilt and shame. And I had a uh, a friend from summer camp, uh, older guy, I was, I don't know, maybe 13, 14, he was maybe 22. Uh, I know now he had some sexual interest in me, I didn't realize it back then, but 
he volunteered. He said, oh, you're curious about girls? I'll, be, I'll send you some, some pictures from magazines. He went back to Germany, but he would send me cutouts from porn magazines, and I thought that was pretty cool. And he would even send me the, the German magazines over there have different standards, so he would send me teen <coughs> magazines. And in Germany, the teen magazines had pictures, softcore pictures of naked teenagers. So I have this dichotomy of, you know, I'm a guy, I'm really curious, but I'm really ashamed. And that was really typical for the guys that I grew up with. We all had, because we couldn't express our sexuality in a normal way. So it was hidden, it was underground, it was, you know, this was before the internet, so it was what you could pass back and forth. And then finally what really got me into trouble, and I'll stop with this one, was I got to college, uh, late 90s, all of a sudden I had internet access and the floodgate opened. All of a sudden now instead of having to steal one or two pictures I could get thousands, tens of thousands of pictures and that's when I got addicted to pornography and that's when pretty much every guy I know got addicted to pornography. Thank you. So I'm going to take a pause here from my questions. I will preface I'm going to open it up to Q&A for a minute to have you all ask your own questions. I will preface it with a few things. One is that I'm going to get into, after the Q&A, we're going to take a break, um, and then I'm going to get into the what happened next, how did you get out, what was that path, things of that nature, um, and a little bit about um, some of what happened while in that situation for some of our panelists. Um, so know that that's coming, but on the subjects we've touched on now of your childhood, your pathways, think of the, we, we talk a lot in our anti-tracking movement on ramps of things that led you into this space. Um, if you have some questions about that, we can have our panelists answer them. Um, just be mindful of <coughs> language that you use and all of our things on the board. Nice words. Happy thoughts. Don't be scared. There you go. There you go. Strike that. So it's going to be the first question. Thank you. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to thank you on behalf of all of us because it's really brave and courageous to put yourself out there. And we all probably have things that to say, and you're not going to get to hear our vulnerable stories that you know we've had to overcome. And we're looking at you, and you're looking at us, but we're only hearing you and found it inside yourself to tell us these things. It's, it's, a, it's incredible, and thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and so um, just to, I know it's really hard to, to follow you, and so to get something started, I, what I was wondering is if you um, were in a situation now where you're walking down the street or you're at a party or you're in a place and you see someone and you realize it's you, I mean, that person is still 16 or 15, what would you say to that person? I just got chills. It's a very common question. Thank you. So um, I think we're going to get into it more later with what we actually do now because we actually go after those people. We don't wait till we accidentally see them. Uh, we are, uh, all of us here, are the three of us I know for sure, we're active in the communities. We run programs. We, we deal with those 15, 16-year-olds. What our organizations do, which we'll explain. But if we did, if I personally just happened to see something from a young man or a young woman that was out there, it's my duty and obligation to approach them 
if the situation is right. You can't just walk into every situation. And I know that out of awareness and out of being being there doing that. And um, if you do it wrong, you'll scare them away and you won't be effective. So primary thing we can cover, because um, people ask this question all the time, what do I do when I think I somebody's being a victim? My, my personal belief is become a friend with them. Mm-hmm. Do not sound condescending. Do not become in as the great white savior. Please do not. Um, Build a friend and a relationship because at some point in time, everybody that I've know that been through the game and the life, there's pivot points where they want to get out. And most people get stuck in because they don't see or know there's an out. Now, if I know you're my friend, you're cool. At the least of things, I will reach out to you if I know that opening's there. Don't push the, oh, you're trafficked, I'm about to save you. Most people don't even affiliate or associate with the word traffic or survivor. Those terms alone, you're chasing people away. And I don't know if we're gonna get into that later, but we'll talk about all these emergency room posters that are up that are doing no good. So I do see one of me every day, because I have a 14 year old and a 12, almost 12 year old. So I see me every day. Um, My 12-year-old is not so much the same type of personality that I am, but my 14-year-old, she is me to a T. It's all me. I don't know how her dad even helped create her. But um, seeing the same vulnerabilities and and being 31 now, being able to pay attention to the generational um, impact that has happened and seeing what I don't want to translate over to my daughter because noticing that that translated from my mom and that translated from my grandma and so on and so forth. Um, Seeing what I, first and foremost, what I needed um, when I was her age. I can never remember my mom giving me a hug. I can never remember my mom telling me she loves me. Um, I never really remember my mom telling me she's proud of me still to this day. No matter how much work I do, it's it's never seemed like enough. So trying to fulfill that aspect in my own daughter as well as young women that I come encounter with and young men in the community to let them know like I see what you're doing and I see that you're you're doing your best with what you have let me try to support you in finding more options like Armand said finding more support what it is that you want to do versus me telling them what I think she should Mm -hmm. be doing Um, giving them options and letting them know because I always use the example like I knew when I was young that doctors and lawyers existed because I see them on TV I see that people have those jobs but nobody ever came to me and was like, you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer. And so I try to remember that when I come in contact with any youth and letting them know like, you can be anything that you wanna be. Your limits are only as, as, as um, limited as your mind. Mm-hmm. And what your thought process is and your thought pattern. And like Armand said, just double back on that, like building rapport is everything. Because you're more than likely not going to meet a person and they're ready to change your life right then and there. I mean, how many of us does that happen to? But planting those seeds and continuing that process to help those seeds be watered, that eventually, you're, that person's gonna remember you, even if you just have a cup of coffee with them. Uh, well, they're teenagers, so don't give them coffee. <laughs> Java juice, whatever. Tea, decaf, you know, you don't wanna support that. But, um, you know, whatever that is, just sitting down, letting them know that they matter and that they are important and not focusing on their trauma. Even if you yeah. see it all over their face, don't focus on that, focus on, everything but the trauma and remind them um, how to be joyful and that there's good people. One thing for sure, I, I deal with gang members, current gang members, current pimps, current prostitutes, current drug dealers. One thing I can't do is tell them to stop an activity that's feeding their face and their family without a replacement. 
stop doing this and what? They, so they look at me, okay, I want you to stop selling drugs. Okay, you got a job for me? That's pain. You have a house for me to live in? So it's like, we need to develop the answer to at simultaneously. You are seeing me every day on, on this campus, guarantee you, on this campus. 98% of um, Americans say they've looked at, porn, or 98% of men say they've looked at pornography in the last six months. 80% say they've looked at it in the last week. So it, it's not a matter of, if I see me, me is all around and as, as you know now, with cell phones, with um, the dark web and things like that, it is way worse. And my wife, who's a pediatric nurse practitioner, is telling me there are teenagers coming in with sexual dysfunction because the pornography has literally, and a lot of you probably know this, it's physically, mechanically rewired their brains. So, but really to echo these guys, I, I want to point one thing out here. I just took account, and, and there are about 56, 57 women here, and about 10 men. This is the problem. This is the problem. This is why I wanted to get involved, because there aren't me standing up. There isn't a me. There isn't a male. Armand is a huge inspiration to me, because I can tell you, as that 14, 15-year-old kid, if... One, if Jamie comes to me, Jamie's wonderful, but I'm going to say, Psh, Jamie, you're a tiny little white lady. You don't understand what it's like to be a guy. Guys are horny. Guys have needs. We need men to stand up and say, this is a problem. This is what you do with it. And I agree with Armand. You've got to have solutions. Because if you sit out there, man, you think I didn't hear people talk about pornography? Mm. It was talked about constantly. Pornography's evil. Pornography's of the devil. It made you want to watch it. Yeah, if, I, if anything, it makes you more curious. But it definitely didn't help me because I'm looking at it. So what's my choice? Go in front of the church? Tell everybody, yeah, I'm evil. I'm of the devil. You can't do that. So again, like Armand says, until we have programs and until we make those programs available, to the buyers, and that's what I love about Ebony's talk, and Ebony's talk, man, it, it kills me when she does it. Until we have empathy for the buyers, just like the drug epidemic, we can hit the drug dealers all we want. It will never go away until we stop the demand. We need to hit the demand, and we need to hit it with empathy. We need to hit it with understanding. Jamie and Ebony first, and Jamie and Ebony said, this is not well-rounded, this is just one perspective. And we brought in Armand. And we had this courageous person. Armand is literally the only person that I know, definitely in the United States, in the country, in the world, <laughs> who's out there giving his perspective of, of how he went down this path and what he's doing now. And you'll hear about the work that all of them are doing soon. Um, and but we didn't have a buyer. Um, we didn't have somebody who's courageous enough to speak out and say exactly what Rick just said. And we all knew that we were missing a piece of this puzzle because of that, and that's actually why Ebony does the buyer side, is because we didn't have a buyer to give that part of the lecture. 
And then we, we did this program back in September for Rotary, and Rick was one of the attendees. Um, and I don't know, Rick, if you could just share us of what, what gave you the courage to speak out and why did you join us? You could have easily just sat there and not said a word. You know, it's funny is I do public speaking for a living. I go regularly in front of audiences of four or 5,000 people. Don't blink, don't sweat, don't think about it. This right here terrifies me. This terrifies me. But that's part of this process is being vulnerable with you. So I was in September sitting, not literally, but essentially exactly where you are, watching one of these programs that was Rotary. And this has been my secret shame my entire life. Why the hell would I possibly open my mouth and admit that I've been part of the problem? But when I heard Ebony open up and I all of a sudden heard someone say, 67% of the buyers want to get out of it. They don't know how. The background of a lot of these, mostly men, the background is what's driving them to it. Listening to Armand talk about that brainwashing. You guys know this. We sexualize girls from, I mean, I used to work in children's theater and I had a little girl, seven years old, when I was teaching children's theater, bend over and she had a thong on. And of course I was like, oh my God, what the hell is a seven-year-old girl doing with a thong? What is going on in our society? And when are we going to put on the brakes and say, stop, enough. We don't need any more Britney Spears. We don't need any more, um, what's that other girl whose dad is a... Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus. We don't need her as a 16-year-old pole dancing at TV awards. We sexualize these teenage girls, and then we're surprised that a 27-year-old man is coming and hitting on a 15-year-old girl. Why are we surprised? We shouldn't be surprised. We've been telling this guy, this is normal. This is good. So for me, I, I, it was the safe space, I guess, to get back. I'm sorry, I'm going to get on the soapbox, and I'm going to start crying. Um, it was the safe space. It was this, this space that we set up here, and none of my Rotarian friends knew this. So for me, sitting where you are, and we were in a one-day seminar, and to finally stand up and say, hey, I'm, I'm on the buyer's side, that was terrifying. That was absolutely terrifying, but I also saw just what I said, which is at some point somebody has to have, and excuse my language, but somebody has to have the balls to stand up and say enough is enough. I'm going to be the one to stand up. I'm going to be the one to put my sword in the ground and say this is it. I'm done with this. I have a little daughter, so back in September she was coming, I have a little daughter now, and I was looking ahead saying I can't live my life like this. I can't have a daughter growing up and be, you know, looking at teenage girls and then she's a teenage girl. I can't be, uh, have all this sexualized stuff around her. I don't want my daughter sexting. Uh, I just pulled up a statistic, 34% of girls in high school have admitted that they've sent a naked picture or sexted with a guy. I don't want my daughter growing up in this, so that's what made me stand up. I met Renuka in this very room. And the reason that I met her was that her daughter was doing a documentary about her life. Um, her daughter, who's a sophomore in college, freshman? Sophomore. Um, and so I wonder if you could just share with us, and then we're going to take a break after that, um, how, how you came to share your story with your daughter. When we asked that, it, it, to me, it ties back to the question of how do you, you know, talk to others? What would you tell someone else? How did you tell your daughter? Um, my mom, when she adopted me, sorry, 
my mom, when she adopted me, at first I was a foster child, and then she adopted me, and she gave me the best love. We kept it a secret. A lot of the lawyers, their friends, everybody said, we need to tell people what happened to her, how you adopted her. And, but we both decided that it's best to keep it a secret because she wanted a daughter and I wanted a mom. And we kept it a secret for years. Everybody thought she just went to India because she was a military wife and adopted an Indian girl and was a happy clan. My daughter, born 2000, and she asked me why my mom and my, all my parents are white. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, mixed. She had an African-American dad, and we're all this big family, and she was questioning. But eighth grade, she says, why my grandma is white? And I didn't, you know, this is all weird, just family. You know, my mom loved, they traveled together. You know, she's a great piano player. My mom took her all over the world. You know, she could play piano. But at high school, she went to private high school, OOP, Lady of Peace. I acted like I'm a rich Indian girl. Didn't announce to anyone. My daughter didn't tell. She has very, you know, all her friends were very wealthy, hanging out with all these cars. They're driving BMWs. Senior year, she says, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm like, no way. You know, everybody thinks I'm just this Indi rich Indian girl who's very educated, and I do not want you to tell. No, we have to tell. And she went to one of the teacher and said, I want to tell my mom's story. For a senior documentary, they have to do a project on a senior. All the seniors said, we want to do it on Tatiana's mom. We agreed that we should do a documentary on our Tatiana's mom. The teacher contacted me and said, is it really true what your daughter is saying? Hmm. And I said, I really didn't want to talk about it. And he says, could we meet up sometime and see if we could do the documentary because Tatiana really wants to do it and all the seniors agreed that we'll do the documentary. And then Jamie was here speaking and the teacher wanted me to come over, listen to Jamie and all the students, they were so supportive. They said, we will be all standing by you when you're telling this story. I, I agreed to do it. And that's when in 2018, the story came out. My old secret came out. All my church friends, everybody is like flabbergasted. It's like, no way that didn't happen to you. But my mom's still in a denial that I'm doing this. She doesn't go to a lot of the functions because we're very, see, she likes to keep it down low. And she says, you're my daughter. I don't want to announce to anyone who you are, where you come from. And the God gave me a gift. I, I wasn't pregnant with you, but he gave me a gift. And I, I'm going to keep it. I don't want to just announce it to anyone. But that's my story. My daughter started open doors for me. <laughs> <laughs> and now she's in college and I tell her it's all your fault. I have to go to this function. <laughs> and she laughs. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are going to take um, a five, ten minute break right now. Um, really